bum, 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 bum. All right, if you have Bibles with you, please open up to Romans chapter 8. I have been uh, teaching a new series of messages on the topic of love. Today will be my fourth message in the series. So we've been here a little over two years now. Have you noticed that I like to sink my teeth into either a text or a topic and try and mine it for all it's worth? I feel very comfortable just kind of camping at one spot and seeing what we can get out of it. It's really enjoyable for me. I'm not really sure how you feel about it, but I'm kind of having a good time. So this is my fourth message in the series on the topic of love. So far we've looked at three just profound scripture texts on, the, on this topic. We looked at Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31, where Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, to love your neighbors as yourself. He said there's no greater commandment than these powerful verses in scripture the week after that, we looked at um, another text, another place where Jesus spoke, and he raises the bar in John 13, 34, and 35. He, he says to his disciples in the upper room, he says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. I'm thinking we could spend probably the next hundred years and work just on that and it would be worth the effort oh god that we would love last week we looked at one of my favorite texts uh, from paul's uh, epistle to the ephesians in chapter 3 verses 16 and 19 it's paul's prayer for the church at ephesus and this is what he prays he says i pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Oh man, I would love to be filled <laughs> to the measure of all the fullness of God. One thing I'm pretty sure of, I'm not there yet, but boy, oh boy, wouldn't that be awesome. I'm thinking love is one key to being filled in that way. Powerful, powerful prayer. And so today I want to look at yet another powerful set of verses on the topic, but this time from Paul's letter to the Romans in verses uh, 31 to 39. So uh, you can follow along on the screen, or if you have Bibles with you, I'm going to start at verse 31. And this is what Paul writes. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No, no one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life and is the right hand of God and is also interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, 
In all these things, we are more than conquerors to him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, neither or any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, I thank you for your word. Powerful verses in your word. Lord, I pray that you'd use me today to speak your word to your people in a way that will be extraordinarily life-giving to them. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. So let's talk context. Um, these, this series of messages, I'm just kind of cherry-picking. I'm, I'm plucking just choice verses out of, out of different um, port, portions of Scripture. And, and just for the, the sake of integrity, the, the teacher part in me likes to give you the context of the verse before I go into expounding upon the verse itself. So the great reformer, Martin Luther, is quoted as saying this concerning Paul's letter to Romans. He says, this letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is the purest gospel. It is well worth a Christian's while, not only to memorize it word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily, as though it were daily bread for the soul. It is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. This is from the preface to the letter of St. Paul to the Romans by Martin Luther. He, can you tell he kind of likes the book? He feels, feels pretty good about it. Right? It's one of the, he thinks it's the choices. It's the best of Scripture. I, I couldn't find a quote, but I remember hearing a, a quote years ago by Martin Luther that said, if we could have only but one book in the Scripture, in his opinion, he said it would be Romans. If we, if we lost all the rest of the text, he thought Romans was the most important. So Paul's letter to, to the Church of Rome, it's profoundly significant. The message of the gospel of salvation by faith and not by works is communicated with crystal clarity. And it's astonishing to me, more than 2,000 years later, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ still wrestles with this concept of is salvation by works or by grace. It, it still underlines and it, it's an ongoing uh, tug of war in the life of the church. For the students among us, if you enjoy studying scripture, I wholeheartedly encourage you, take some time and dig into Romans. You will not be disappointed. So Paul has 13 epistles. If you, average, if you average them out, they come out to about 1,300 words. Romans has 7,100, 7,100 words. That alone makes it rather unusual letter. This epistle, <clears throat> this letter, it's a letter of introduction. The Apostle Paul is introducing himself to the Church of Rome. He hadn't been there yet. He wanted to go there. And he's sending this letter ahead of his visit. He wrote to assure, he wrote it for this reason, to assure the Roman Christians that the message he was sharing was indeed the gospel of grace of God in Christ Jesus. You see, rumors had been spreading around about Paul that he was preaching a false gospel. Religious legalists of the day opposed the concept of salvation by grace through faith, and they would contradict Paul's message. They would either go ahead of him, if they knew where he was going, they would go ahead of him and contradict his message. Others would follow right behind him as he would go on his missionary journeys. These religious legalists would follow behind him and say, no, 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 that's not the truth. 
Things haven't changed much for 2,000 years. So the church in Rome, see, it's a mix of both Jews and Gentiles. And there was this ongoing tension between these two groups of believers. Um, the big issue in Rome, in this letter, is how can anyone get right with God? This is the question that's trying to be answered. Paul makes it clear, as he writes to this church with two very distinctly different people groups, that neither group has an advantage. He said, he's letting them know that the Jews didn't have an advantage because they were Jews, and the Gentiles didn't have an advantage because they weren't. And he, he makes it clear in an earlier passage than we're going to look at today in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jew or Gentile, we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Even so, even so that's our state, there's very good news in this gospel. That forgiveness, that acceptance, that new life in the spirit is available to all, Jew or Gentile, as a free gift from God, simply to be received by faith. This, this as well as some of the other um, books I've told you about, it, you could break this one down into, into two parts as well. The first 11 chapters speak very well of what God has done for all who believe. And chapters 12 through 16 are, is a letter to us on how we as believers ought to live in response to this lavish grace that God's poured out upon us. Chapter 8, section we want to look at today, is one of the most powerful declarations of God's great love for us. And it's the reason why I chose that text to be part of this uh, series of messages. One last bit of context before we go into the verses. Um, this letter is written to Christians and for Christians. This chapter is, is for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's clear from the very first verse in the chapter. If you look at Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This section of the letter is for those who are in Christ. The context of verses 31 to 39 is that it's addressing those who already have a relationship uh, with Christ Jesus. It's not addressing all of humanity. It's specifically addressing followers of Jesus. So let's take a look at the text today. Verse 31, it says, If God is for us, who can be against us? The, the presupposition in, in this statement is that God is indeed for us. That, that's, that's assumed as he makes the statement. That God is for, God's for us. As his followers, as his sons and his daughters, God is for us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God... That God's not just for us as a people group. That he's not just for us as Charlottetown Community Church. It, not that he's just for Christians, but he's for you. That you individually, as you sit in the seat today, God is for you. He is. That he has your very best interests at heart. He cares for you personally. Sadly, in my experience, few believers actually embrace that. The context of this statement is not questioning whether or not God is for us. It's stating that he is for us to such a great degree that it doesn't matter, it really doesn't matter, who or what comes against us. Now make no mistake, there will be opposition. But it's nothing compared to the God who's for us. 
when you weigh the two. We will have trouble. We will have tribulation. We will have opposition. Paul knows this all too well because he's faced just horrific opposition both from people and from demons. He, he, expound, he lists what he's gone through, the trials, the troubles that he's faced in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 21 to 31. Let me read these to you because it's, just, it's, it's pretty significant what he had to deal with. He said, whatever, <clears throat> whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more seriously, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and I've gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, <clears throat> I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is to be praised forever, knows that I'm not lying. Paul went through some stuff. Paul had troubles. Paul had opposition. He had turmoil in life. He didn't have some better roses as his Christian experience, did he? Right? So he knows what it's like if God is for us, who can be against us. He gives us some understanding of this man. He's not preaching this from some lofty ivory tower where he's never suffered pain. Jesus himself said that we'd have opposition. John 16, 33. He said, I have told you these things so that in me you will have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. All of you here, you know from your own experiences, from the, the journey you've been on as you've walked this walk of faith, that life has its troubles. I don't think there's a person in here who could say we haven't, we haven't faced some kind of obstacle, some kind of burden, some type of tribulation or trouble. We all have. What Paul's doing here, he's simply saying that no matter how significant the opposition is against us, that it's nothing compared to the God who's for us. James and Paul both kind of communicated this, this same um, concept in different ways. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. I must confess before I read it, most of the time when I read James 1, 2 to 4, it's like I just want to slap him. But if it's in the context of this verse. <laughs> verse 2 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Not exactly what's going on in my mind when I'm facing trials of many kinds, right? God bless James. Paul says it again another way earlier in Romans 5, verses 1 to 5. He says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So you can see from Scripture, I've given you just plenty of just rock-solid text that Christianity is not a ticket to a trouble-free life. If you were welcomed into the Christian faith with some kind of line that said, just give your life to Jesus, everything's going to be honky-dory, it's just going to be picture-perfect, they lie to you, man. They just, if you don't know that by now, I'm just going to confess it right here. They lie to you. Christianity doesn't take your troubles away. It gives you what you need to get through it. He goes through it with you. Okay, so I already read verses 32 to 34 in the NIV. Let me reread them to you in the message, and then I'll, I'll have a few words to say about them. I love the way the message puts things. It says, if God didn't hesitate to put everything online for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would dare even point a finger? The one who died for us? Who was raised to life for us? Is in the presence of God at this very moment sticking up for us? So for me, Peterson just gets it. The NIV sentence structure of these verses can feel a bit convoluted, doesn't flow very easily, can be difficult to read. I think the message gets it a little bit better. God gave us Jesus. He gave us his highest and his best. Of course he's for us. He's not pointing a finger at us. He's interceding for us. God is for us. He's not against us. Guys, if you get nothing else out of today, get this. God is for you. Right where you are right now, he is for you. And he's not against you. Which brings us to, the, for me, the heart of today's message, verses 35 to, to 39. Which says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine, nakedness, danger or the sword... Does that sound like a list of some of the things that Paul said he went through when he wrote to the Corinthians? I think he's writing from personal experience. As it is, as it is written, we, for your sake we face day, death all day long. We are considered as sheep for the slaughter. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, no, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. <clears throat> so you read those verses and it seems to me that Paul has a little minor rabbit trail in verses 36 and 37. Kind of like in the preachers do this often, I do it. In the middle of a thought, another thought pops up and so you kind of put that thought in hold and you go down the rabbit trail and hopefully you come back to the original thought. We don't always do that, right? So I think that's what's happening in this little bit here. So let me address verses 36 and 37 first, and then we'll come back and look at verse 35, 38, and 39. Verse 36 and 37. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. 
We are considered as sheep for the slaughter. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Loved us. Here, Paul is quoting Psalm 44, uh, verse 22. The verse in that context is, is speaking about the protracted suffering of God's people at the time. And Paul's using it to describe Christian perseverance in the, sake of, in the face of hardship or, or persecution. And, and then he takes it a step, ver, a step further in verse 37. He says, no. Not, he says, no, even more than perseverance, overcoming. Not just conquering in trial, but more than conquering through Christ, the one who loves us. Again, I think the message says it well, verses 36 and 37. They kill us in cold blood because they hate you. We're sitting ducks. They pick us off one by one. None of this phases us because Jesus loved us. Oh. Wouldn't you like to live unfazed? Imagine you're in a room, people getting picked off, like ducks in a shooting gallery, and you could say you're so at peace, you're so settled in God's love for you, so secure in the knowledge that Jesus is for you and he loves you, that you can say, I'm unfazed. Oh my goodness, that's amazing. I want to live unfazed by the hardships and the trials and the persecutions of life. Not because I'm dull, not because I'm in denial, but because I am so secure. I am so safe and confident in the knowledge of God's great love for me. Oh, I think that would be awesome. So that was his little rabbit trail. He's listing all of these trials. He asked a question, and before he answers the question, he goes off on that little trial, uh, rabbit trail in verses 36 and 37. But let's get back to the question and the answer. So in verse 35, Paul asks this question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? And in verses 38 and 39, he answers the questions he asks. He says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, or any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Guys, that's great news today. That's astonishing news. That's amazingly good news. The love of Christ for you is inseparable. The love that God has for you is absolutely inseparable. You cannot be separated from his love. The word separate here means to put asunder. We don't use asunder anymore very often. You know, you, you kind of only hear it once in a while at a wedding ceremony, right? It's usually after the vows uh, between the bride and the groom, and the minister uh, might say, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder, right? So the concept here of separation, what it really means, it means divorce. You cannot be divorced from God. It's taken from, from the, the text in the wedding ceremony. It's taken from Matthew 19, verses 4 and 6, where Jesus is questioned about divorce. And Jesus says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning of creation, that at the beginning, excuse me, the creator made them male and female. He said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Let no man separate. What Paul is saying is that we're one with Christ. We're no longer two, but we're one. We're inseparably one. Just like Jesus prayed and asked the Father for in John 17. When he prayed, he says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's talking about us, you and me. <coughs> that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them, you and me, so that they may be bought, brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. That oneness that Jesus has prayed for, the oneness that he shares with the Father, that is an absolutely inseparable oneness. The only way we could be separated, we're in this oneness, we're one with them as they're one with one another, the only way we could be separated from them, if it were possible for them to be separated from one, one from another, if the Father, Son, and Spirit could be inseparable from their oneness, then somehow we could be separated. And we can't. They cannot be separated. We cannot be separated. It's absolutely inseparable. Now, a man and a woman may divorce you. God will never divorce you. A mother may forsake a child. God will never leave or forsake you. People, this is good news today. This is very good news. Now, take note of the list of qualifications Paul just doesn't simply make the statement that nothing can separate us from, our love, from God's love. He goes through a whole list of qualifiers. And it's some list. He's taking, he says, you know, nothing, not trouble. Right? The word trouble here means opposition or affliction or tribulation. Not hardship, dire calamity. Or it means extreme affliction. Persecution, hostility or ill treatment, especially because of of your faith, famine, hunger, scarcity of food, especially when it's supposed to be harvest time. That's what famine means. Nakedness. In Paul's day, this, this term meant the lack of clothes simply because no one, simply because one had no ways, no way or means of getting any. Nakedness, in the context of that day, meant that there was a lack of clothes because one had no way or means of getting any clothes. What degree of poverty does someone have to be in that they go around naked because there's no means to get clothing? So it's a nakedness as in the result of severe poverty, danger, or peril, or sword. This word implies execution. It's the, actually, it's the only item on the list at the time when Paul wrote it that he not yet personally experienced because of living for Jesus and for preaching the gospel. But when it says the sword, facing the sword, it means facing execution. They're going to cut your head off. Neither life nor death, nothing natural. Angels or demons, nothing supernatural. 
present or future, nothing at any time, any powers, earthly or heavenly, height or depth, no matter how high you've gone, how low you've been, or anything else in all creation. If he didn't cover it in the list up until that point, let me use an all-encompassing statement at the end. Or anything else in all creation. Any other thing in the whole of God's created universe. Now think about it. Could this statement about how inseparable we are from God's love be any more completely, any more completely qualified? Are there any loopholes in this statement? I know that some of you will probably sit here today and believe that this is true for everybody else. Yes, I read that, and I know it's true for them, because it's true for Tom, because he's a pastor, and so it counts for him. It's true for Nadine, because she's awesome, and we all love Nadine, but I don't think it's true for me. Let me tell you, that, that's a lie, man. That's 100% a lie. It's not true. God is for you. He's not against you. And his love for you is absolutely inseparable. So whatever your circumstances today, however horrific they may be, I desperately want you to know this incredible truth. God loves you. And his love for you is unwavering. On his best day, on your best day, he loves you. On your worst day, he loves you. Think for a moment about the worst day of your life. What was the worst day? He loved you exactly the same on your worst day as he did on your best day. His love is absolutely unwavering. Grant Cook says it this way. He loves you because 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 that's who he is. God loves you because God is love. It's the very essence. It's the very substance of his nature. Of course he loves you. If he didn't love you, if he didn't love you completely and fully with every fiber of his being, he would have to deny who he was. It's a powerful love. He is pure. He is perfect. And he's unadulterated love. Love exists. Love exists in the universe because the Trinity exists. In order for there to be love, there has to be some other to love. It can't be just by yourself. The fact that the Father, the Spirit, and Son are together in this perfect circle of unity, in this perfect circle of love, love exists. They love one another. They love one another in absolute perfection. And they created us so that they could love us. They created us to welcome us into the community of love that they already shared so that we would share in this love. It's the whole purpose for why we're here. And his love for us is so grand, it's so absolutely incredible that God created the vastness of the universe, which is beyond our comprehension, so that we would have a place to hang out. It's as if I said, why don't you come over and have a cup of coffee, and oh, by the way, I got this 100-room mansion. We're going to meet in the... I built a 100-room mansion so you and I can have a table to sit at and share a cup of coffee. That's... That's what his love is like. He created all that there is. 
It's, the, it's an expression of the extravagance of what 1 John 3, 1 calls his great and lavish love for us. Do you see it? Oh, if I could paint you a picture. And not only does he provide that loving environment, Paul tells us that nothing, nothing can separate us from that love. His love will transform us. There's nothing about us, about our sin or our circumstances that have any impact whatsoever on his love for us. Now, make no mistake, in this world, you will have tribulation. We've all suffered trials. There are consequences for our actions. I'm not saying that there aren't. There are absolutely consequences for our actions. But, but there is no consequence that affects his love for us. Romans 8 could not make it any more clear. Nothing will separate us from his love. Again, going back to, to the message, I think it says it well. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way Jesus, our master, has embraced us. I want to feel that embrace. I want to feel the warmth. I want to feel the pull. I want to feel the, the pressure, the comfort of that embrace. Nothing can separate you from that embrace. Nothing. I, that each of you today would feel the warmth of that embrace. That my words could somehow convince you of that truth. Charles Spurgeon speaks of the confidence that great men and women of God had in God's love in ages past, and this is what he writes. They did not speak of Christ's love as though it were a myth to be respected, a tradition to be revered. They viewed it as a blessed reality, and they cast their whole confidence upon it, being persuaded that it would bear them up upon eagles' wings and carry them all their days, resting assured that it would be to them a foundation of rock against which the waves might beat, the winds blow, but their soul's habitation would stand securely if founded upon it. So well said. May we have that confidence. I desire as your pastor that each of you would have just such confidence today, that you would know the incredible security, the unimaginable, firm foundation, the reality of God's love for you. Now, I know that some of you have struggled with the knowledge of God's love. I know that some of you have struggled with knowing that God actually loves you. And so, as we close today, I just want to ask, if your confidence in his love for you has been shaken, if it's been shaken because of circumstances in, in your life, if it's been shaken because of consequences in your life, if it's been shaken because your collateral damage to somebody else's poor choices, if you've been battered by the winds and the ways of life and find it hard to know that God loves you personally, then 
would you, mind, would you stand? If that's you today, if you're in that place where it's hard to know God loves you, I would just love for, for brothers and sisters to come around you and to pray for you today. Isn't that what Christian community should be about? Do you struggle with knowing that God loves you? Do, do you look at the circumstances of life? Do you look at the trials that you face? And do you feel like, oh, I don't think he really loves me. I think it's true for everybody else, but it's not true for me. Is there anybody else who feels that way today? I really want you to get prayer today where maybe this can be lifted. This burden can be lifted off you that you would know the truth, as Scripture says, and that the truth, especially of God's love for you, that it would set you free. Anybody else struggling with this? Okay, if, if you're sitting around someone who's standing, would you guys just gather around them, lay hands on them, and, and, let's, and let's pray? Let's be the body of Christ this morning. Let's be the family of God. Let's, let's be loving brothers and sisters toward one another. Lord, show us how to pray. Show us how to pray, oh God. Thank you for your presence. Lord, I ask that you send your Holy Spirit now. Send the Holy Spirit. Lord, send the spirit of truth. Send the spirit of truth, O oh God, that we would know the truth, the truth of the reality of your word, that we would know the truth of Romans chapter 8 and the truth of your love would absolutely set us free. Do it, Lord. We bless your name, Jesus. Bless our friends today. Touch their hearts, oh God. Touch their minds. Touch their hearts, oh God. Touch their hearts with your truth. Touch their hearts with your very love. Touch their minds. Change the way they think. Transform them by the renewing of their minds. Give them the mind of Christ. Do it, Lord. Do it, Jesus. And Lord, we pray that, that even today and that throughout this week that you would speak to our friends in ways that they recognize that it's you. That there would be circumstances and situations in their life that are a reminder of your great love for them, oh God. Lord, I ask you to speak to them in your words. Speak to them by your spirit. Lord, I pray that songs on the radio would remind them of your great love for them. TV commercials, bulletin boards, sign anything, oh God that will, will be a message from you to them in the language that they speak, that they understand, send them reminders of your love. Lord, I pray that you would continually remind them, no matter how long it takes, until the truth of your love for them, the, how inseparable is your love, would be firmly rooted and established in, in their hearts and their minds. Make it so, God. Make it so. Thank you, Jesus. Make it so, God.